podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is an advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own, not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Have a really special show today in the studio with us, uh, Leonard Nakamura, Vice President and Economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. Background here, Philadelphia, from the Wharton School. Leonard, welcome to our program. Thank you. Uh, I have to say that when what I say here are going to be my views and not those of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia or the Federal Reserve System. Always our own opinions. Yeah. Uh, professor, so it's uh, Friday, employment f- report Friday, but also <laughs> day after the first uh, start of the Eagle season, which I know you were out last yeah, night Yeah, I too. was there. Got, got, uh, got to bed, I think, at one thirty in the morning, but it was worth it uh, at the end. What was so eerie, it was so much, it was like a replay of, of course, that playoff game, uh, you know, with the Falcons going downfield and then Ryan throwing to Jones in the end zone and missing with zero seconds. I, you know, it was unbelievable. It's like history repeats. Um, and we pulled out a win. Um, so, <laughs> uh, showing your youth, I fell right asleep and you were at the game party. So. I was at, I, I got revved up because I'll tell you, the first half was terrible play really on both sides, particularly Eagles side, but the second half was really exciting. <laughs> okay. Back to our, uh, our, our sort of topic du jour of the day. Um, the deployment report. Yeah. So, all right. I, I regarded this as a pretty hot report, and I, I say hot report in the sense of um, being hawkish in, uh, in terms of Federal Reserve. I mean, everyone expects the Fed to raise on its September 26th meeting, um, and uh, we're not sure about December, um, but if, if, if the reports continue in the pattern that we uh, just got, I think um, December is going to be a slam dunk increase uh, also. Uh, it, it isn't so much, a, I mean, we we got um, 201,000, which was 11,000 more than expected on the payroll. Now, there was a downward revision of 50,000 for the previous uh, 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 two months. Um, so uh, um, that was true, but a lot of, uh, the, the details were, 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 were hawkish. Now, the unemployment rate was expected to go down from three nine um, to three eight, it stayed at three nine. But you have to understand that they round to the nearest tenth. It was actually three eight five, and so it was just about there. Um, but I think what really is hit the market. You saw it in the bond rate immediately. The ten year jumped about four or five basis points on this, and that was average hourly, hourly uh, earnings. Um, jumped by twice the expectation. It was expected to go up two-tenths. It was up four-tenths the year-over-year, 2.9. That's a new cyclical high. It revises the whole question of this uh, uh, very strong tightness in the labor market, putting inflationary uh, cost pressures on, which the Fed has to stand against. Uh, You know, also the... um, underemployment rate, the so-called U6 rate, uh, did decline to a new cyclical low of of 7.4%. And remember, many economists uh, regarded that as a slack uh, in uh, the system that could absorb a low unemployment rate without causing pressures. But that slack is obviously rapidly um, uh, disappearing uh, in in the system. Also, we, um, you know, disappointing 
we want to see the labor participation rate rise because then we can absorb 200,000 increases we've been getting without pressures, but the, um, the uh, labor participation rate actually fell two-tenths of a percent. So it just sort of stays in the range. And bottom line is that it, it, the economy is producing through demand 200,000 net jobs a month. Demographics is supplying us with 100,000, give or take, uh, which means further tightening, further downward pressure on unemployment, um, uh, which means the Fed, the Fed has to continue to raise rates until they get that um, non-farm payroll down much closer to the demographic increases in the population. I mean, I would like uh, Leonard's uh, take on that, um, what you agree and disagree with. <laughs> well, I, I think um, one interesting thing is the fact that uh, we did have this reduction in 50,000 uh, jobs from the previous two months. So even though we were a little off uh, on the uh, this year's uh, this month's forecast, uh, overall, where it was a slowing of um, the growth rate of employment from what we had been expecting. Um, so we're below 200,000 over the last three months. Um, I think it's very encouraging that we are getting 2.9% uh, uh, average hourly earnings, but that's still a pretty slow rate of yes. growth. And it could be because of productivity, which we did see jump in the last quarter. So don't forget, wage growth doesn't necessarily mean inflation if it's caused by productivity increase. Right. Exactly. And, and so it's a little bit too soon to you know, say for sure that that is uh, inflationary at this particular point. Right. So let me just give a you know, jump in with a reintroduction of, of Leonard and also the Philadelphia Fed because there's some some interesting news um, in partnership with Wharton from the Philadelphia Fed. So, so Leonard, as as an economist, uh, before getting to the Philly Fed, you've been there for about 30 years. Before that, you were an economist at Citibank. You were at uh, a consultant for the Conference Board, but you've taught courses here at Wharton. I think alongside Professor Siegel back back before the Philly Fed. Um, so one of the updates, just briefly for people, you know, we've been doing a podcast from you know, our show, but the Wharton and the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia have also now partnered to develop a new podcast series titled The Philadelphia Fed on Wharton Business Radio. And we're going to start seeing them. The first episode on this new partnership will be from today's conversation. So it's, uh, it's an exciting new development for the Philadelphia Fed to be partnering with Wharton. Yes, and we're very excited, and, and it's really great uh, that we have this new means of transparency to uh, talk with the public about. Yeah. Let me also say that um, there's always been a close relationship between Wharton and the Philly Fed. The, the Philly Fed has supplied us with excellent teachers when we have run short. Uh, um, we've had many of our faculty, including myself, many, many years ago as a research scholar, uh, to do sabbaticals and time at the Philly Fed. So this just continues, I think, a great partnership that we've had through the uh, through the decades, really. Absolutely. And we continue to have, um, you know, lots of conferences together. We have visiting scholars from Wharton and from the Penn Department, and it's it's really been great. It's exciting to have the podcast, and we'll we'll keep you guys coming on our program. Um, well, I mean, maybe we could talk. Let's jump into the the topic that you your research is focused on. And professor, we've talked about related. I, and I knew you're going to be excited to talk to him because we've talked about are there mismeasurements in GDP that might get into this productivity? Productivity has been disappointing, but part yeah. of its measurement. And Leonard, your research has focused on. GDP mismeasurement. Yeah, a lot, let me in a lot let me let me set that up because we spoke as as you said, Jeremy, so many times on this show. Um, uh, one of the the in a way the puzzles of uh, the last uh, ten years, um, even starting a little bit before the financial crisis, is the slowdown in productivity. But it's gotten more market. I mean, it's we've had terrible productivity growth as measured. Uh, over the last decade. And normally in cyclical expansions, actually productivity runs ahead of its long-term normal, and this has been way below. Um, also, by the way, this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. 
It's a global phenomenon um, in the developed world, uh, maybe even developing, but they have uh, many different factors, but in the developed world. And um, there's a lot of potential explanations for that, for this, but one of them, um, and, and this is what Leonard's research is really uh, directed at, uh, is the mismeasurement of, of output. Are we understating uh, the uh, the output that we're getting because of free goods uh, and therefore overstating prices of, of uh, the goods that we buy. So, Leonard, can you give us a, a, a little bit of framework for how you like to think about this issue and whether you think this is an important issue that impinges on the data that we, we look at? Okay, let, let me begin by saying that I have good news and bad news. <laughs> And the good news is that the economy is undoubtedly much more vibrant and successful than our statistics say. The bad news is that we are much more uncertain about the true rate of growth and the true rate of inflation than, than, than we've been in the past. Let me uh, go so far as to say that is not impossible, although my... I wouldn't say this was my central estimate, but it's not impossible that real growth is 2% faster than reported, and inflation is 2% slower than reported. But there are huge uncertainties. And I want to emphasize that this is not the fault of our statistical agencies. Our statistical agencies are the best in the world. And these problems um, are being... They're, do, they're aware of them, and they're doing their best to cope with them, but they're way underfunded to, to do this. And by the way, you know, our statistical agencies lead the entire world's statistical agencies. And, um, and so if we can't get the job done, nobody can get the job done. Uh, so the fact that this is occurring all over the world is not a surprise. Uh, everybody has the same problems. So let me start with free goods. Right? And one of the interesting things that's happened is that digitalization, the internet, you know, uh, the mobile broadband, means that the transfer of knowledge and the transfer of information can take place much, much more cheaply than it has in the past. And, you know, we have a society that has really maxed out, in a certain sense, on quantity, right? We have um, too much food, you know, the uh, Malthusian prediction of too little food has really not panned out. You could argue that we have too much clothing. You know, we have more than a motor vehicle per licensed driver in the United States. Um, the gasoline consumption is uh, on trend shrinking, not rising. Um, the uh, so and our statistical system was designed to catch quantity growth. Right, think back to the supply demand diagram. You have price on uh, the uh, vertical axis and quantity on the horizontal axis. What we think of as greater, more. GDP growth is a movement along that quantity axis. These are called widgets, remember? Right. (laughs) An abstract little quantity of something. Right. And, uh, but now what we have is digits. We're going from widgets to digits. (laughs) (laughs) And digits uh, are hard to keep track of. You know, so one example I like is the fact that we uh, have had relatively little growth in real uh, telecommunications output. 
and uh, and that's because the deflator is about zero, and we're not we're spending a, actually a slightly shrinking portion of our budgets on telecommunications. And deflator, we mean the price index, right? right. For some yeah. of the non-economists out there. Right. <laughs> so and uh, so the way we measure telecommunications output is by the minute, right? But is minutes really what we care about? What's really been changing rapidly is the amount of data that passes through mobile broadband. That's been growing at a 60% annual rate, Mm -hmm. right? But we don't meter those data bits. And so we don't know how to count digital output, and we don't know how to value, um, you know, these streams. Um, So what happens is that we get all kinds of free goods, different apps that you can put on your phone that don't cost you anything, like, let's say, Google Maps. I mean, I was just in Copenhagen for the first time. And, you know, if I wanted to get someplace, I could look at the bus map, but the bus map was nearly incomprehensible. But if I went onto Google Maps, it would tell me not just, um, you know, what, what was the fastest bus to take, but, you know, exactly how to get there and how long it would take. And in English. And in English. Or any language you want. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, but that's free. Now, how do we value that? Right? So we can't value the cost of the telecommunications. We, can't, we don't know how to measure the value of the app itself because it's coming in for free. Right? And uh, digitalization is a process by which knowledge and information pass basically costlessly through the universe, right? Think of Wikipedia, Hmm. right? So I was reading somewhere that uh, 9 billion page downloads, uh, page views of Wikipedia a day, right? And... But Wikipedia is a volunteer organization. It comes for free. Right. I mean, yeah, no, the the ability to get and access information has exploded. As you were talking, uh, Leonard, uh, I was thinking of other revolutions through history. uh, And and we can argue this is the deepest. I mean, you know, I, I think the Chinese in the second century invented paper. Um, then, of course, we had the, the Gutenberg Bible, the printing for the first time in the 17th century, which accelerated the ability to disseminate information. Is this perhaps the greatest of all of them? I, I don't know whether it's the greatest of all, I, but, uh, I mean, if you think about, I've, I've spent some time studying the period uh in the late 15th century after the Gutenberg Bible uh, came out. And, you know, it's uh, mind-boggling, mm-hmm. the impacts of that. So not only did we wind up having the uh, Catholic Church get into all kinds of trouble uh, because of uh, the Gutenberg press, but uh, the exploration of um, – the Western Hemisphere was greatly accelerated by the printing press as well. Mm-hmm. It's like the, I remember in, you, we talked about that in the Future for Investors, and it was like the cost of communication went down by a factor of fifty or something right. like that. And I wonder how, when you're talking about the inflation, the def, we might be having two percent less inflation or this uh, this dramatic cost right. costs are decreasing more than we realize I mean do you have a sense of how much cost of communicating is has been decreased from the internet well I, I mean just looking at data quantities um, you know we're talking anywhere from 30 to 50 percent 
a year, and this has been going on for decades. And, and, and we're not even talking about the, the value of time. I mean, if you think of you know my early days in doing research, I had to go to the library and then hope f- that certain books and volumes were there. I mean, that um, before you could get them and then determine whether th- that was relevant. I mean, it was an extremely time consuming process uh, as well. Forget about the cost. I mean, everyone had an encyclopedia and, you know, cost several hundred dollars to a thousand if you wanted to get the Britannica of it. But um, just just the time spent uh, has uh, just, of course, become almost uh, instantaneous. Right. And the convenience factor is really important. So um, Shane Greenstein has uh, professor at, out at Stanford has, has talked about this, um, that the internet uh, activity is very elastic and bursty. And what that means is that you can do it whenever you want at, and fit it into your schedule, right? So, um, you know, you're online at the drugstore, and you go onto the internet, and suddenly time that otherwise would be wasted becomes valuable, right? So there's a way in which the internet, as we now have it in this mobile form, permits us to expand time. Think of all the time shifting, which is a major breakthrough in entertainment you see movies when you want. You see TV shows when you want. You don't have to be there. I mean, one of the few things that you do have to be there is if you want to watch a live sports show because, you know, it, you know, and, of course, the advertisers know that because <laughs> that's about the only thing they can exploit now um, in terms of that. But the, the ability to time shift and, therefore, you're right. Uh, absolutely, expand time, and GDP doesn't explicitly put any value on leisure time at all. That's uh, right, and uh, and GDP explicitly excludes home production. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about the mobile internet and the internet generally is that the first two-way mass communication that human society has experienced. And by the way, we've been talking a lot about the positives of all this, but there are also lots of negatives. And that's one of the reasons that I say that we really don't know, don't have with great certainty the value of a lot of um, what we're producing. There's no gatekeepers to so much of the information that's produced, so you don't have that automatic feeling that is it is it true or not. Uh, we, everyone, of course, talks about the fake news. Uh, of course, on the entertainment side, you're not, you're not worried about that as as much. You can time shift it. Uh, but I, I, I'm very interested in the very beginning. Did, did I hear you right? This you you say it could be. All this counting for free goods could be as much as 2% a year above what we now compute. And before you answer that, just let me reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Leonard Nakamura of the Vice President of Research of Philadelphia Fed. Okay, so um, uh, <laughs> I was told not, not to say okay when I start talking. So yeah, that's and fine. That stopped me for a second here. <laughs> Um, why could it be 2%? Let me give me just a tiny example. So we just said that mobile broadband communication uh, has been growing in data, as may, if we use data as the unit of quantity, has been growing about 60% a year. Right? Mm. So that's about 1% of personal consumption expenditures. So if that's growing 60% a year, that would add 0.6 mm-hmm. to PCE and subtract personal consumption. 
person's right. consumption and subtract 0.6 from inflation, 0.6%. So, uh, and there are a bunch, now, uh, I don't think that data is the, necessarily the right quantity measure to be using there. But we don't really know what is. And um, and I could multiply that example uh, in many different ways. For example, uh, let's take the self-driving car. Now, we haven't gotten all that far down the road of the self-driving car, but it doesn't seem impossible that over the next 30, 40 years we could get there, right? Well, the way we currently count automobiles, right, the self-driving car would probably not uh, have much more real value than a non-self-driving car. And yet the advantages in terms of increased leisure, and in terms of reduced accidents and all that kind of thing, would be trillions of dollars. And it'll likely be a decrease in the number of people driving. Probably could be a downward reversion because you're going to have a lot less cars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let let me be a little bit of a devil's advocate. Um, uh, you and good. I, I I need devil's advocate. Of course, you and I both know uh, Robert Gordon of Northwestern yeah. University. In fact, we have uh, Joel Moker and yes, Gordon. Joel Moker and Robert Gordon has been on our show, um, arguing uh, one Robert Gordon being known as a productivity pessimist, uh, Joel Moker as a productivity optimist. Um, but Robert Gordon has written uh, a, a very lengthy uh, volume called The Rise and Fall of U- U.S. Uh, Growth. Um, and he acknowledges these quality changes, but he said, we've been having these quality changes forever. Um, and they, they're, not, they're not measured. Um, uh, now, we, we were talking a little bit at, at lunch about um, the first sort of mass media where when we went to television, well, first radio and then TV, you don't pay for each program, but you're getting all this entertainment uh, there. Now, it's not two-way, as you're saying right now, we have the two-way uh, inter- interaction uh, with the current um, smartphones, um, but... Could you argue that we've had these types of qualitative changes in the past, or do you think this is a quantum break from the type of qualitative changes that we experienced um, uh, over the past century? That's a really tough question, and my uh, and I'm trying to work on some answers to that as as we speak. But um, I have not gotten all that far. And, and I would guess that even when uh, that particular set of papers is completed, we'll still have a lot of uncertainties. So, for example, you know, Bob Gordon likes to talk about how valuable indoor plumbing is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's no question that indoor plumbing is tremendously valuable. And even today, people's willingness to pay for indoor plumbing is really quite high. So they, um, and it, uh, you know, water is provided by and large by governments. And it's, you know, sometimes it's metered, uh, but it's, uh, we pay much less than uh, consumers value it at. Uh, and that's, you know, people also talk about air as being a similar thing. And uh, so there are a lot of thorny issues to even think about this stuff. Yeah, let me just elaborate a little bit. But what we're talking about, remember, GDP is price times quantity. Um, for something to have a non-zero price, it has to be scarce because if if it's all if it can be free and anyone can pick up as much, there wouldn't be a price to it. 
So um, you have to realize when we when like when we teach econ one, we have to make a big distinction between what we call wealth and welfare. Um, one values everything at the margin, and welfare takes what we call the total utility, total satisfaction. And you know we get t- tremendous satisfaction from having. Um, you know, clean air, clean water, we pay very little for it. Um, so it doesn't get into GDP in any meaningful way, but it's extremely important. Let me just review um, for those people who might be joining us that we're, we're, one of the big disappointments in the official data is a very low productivity growth and GDP growth that we have experienced over the last 10 years. Uh, not only in the United States, it's a worldwide phenomenon. One of the explanations, not the only one, but one of the explanations for it is we are mismeasuring. All the you know, free output doesn't get a price, doesn't get into GDP. Um, um, and we're talking about for, uh, that it, it, it's potentially possible that GDP is, is growing up to 2% faster um, than um, we uh, we think it is. Now, since it's growing at a little over two, this is almost a doubling of that. Now, I, I, Leonard is very careful of saying there's a huge, uh, what we call standard error around this. So don't, you know, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, a, a hard estimate by any means uh, on that. We talked about the free goods, and then at the break, we... We began to talk about other sources of mis- mismeasurement and um, uh, healthcare, which, as we all know, is becoming a bigger and bigger fraction of GDP on spending and government, and probably is destined to do that given the aging of the population into the future. Um, uh, Leonard, can you tell us about some of the measurement problems that we have in healthcare? Well, one very simple measurement problem is that doctors know more than they used to. They have uh, more knowledge. There's been all kinds of research that's been done. There are all kinds of new medicines. There are all kinds of new diagnostic tools at their disposal. Um, But we basically consider an hour of a doctor's time as the same product as it was 60 years ago. So, um, you know, so if a doctor's, an hour of a doctor's time become, has become more expensive, then uh, that's inflation. Right. Uh, and it's not so clear that it really is. Well, I understand we may that, be getting a lot correct more me value. That we talk about hospital nights as the output of the hospital, which is crazy. Because if you can, like, you know, you used to have knee surgery, you were in a week. Now laparoscopic surgery, you're in a day. Um, I mean, the, in a way, the price has gone down, you know, like, you know, 80, 90%, but that's not how it gets measured. Right, and the other thing is that the laparoscopic surgery is much, much less painful. The recovery time is much shorter for the patient. So the patient is all kinds of better off. And yet, we don't know how to measure that as an improvement in output from the healthcare industry. And the result is, is that we think that healthcare um, is declining in terms of its productivity. And so we have all this research and knowledge explosion within the healthcare industry, and but that shows up as a as a contraction of the production frontier, right? We're getting less out for our inputs, and it's all because we don't know how to measure output. And we're talking about. Uh, anywhere from a seventh to a fifth of the economy here, depending on how you count it all out. Now, now some, let's say, critics would say there is areas of absolute inflation. We, we take, and I'm not taking new drugs because that is a big question about, you know, the, like, you know, you finally found a cure for hepatitis C and it's, you know, $800,000, but we never had that before. How do you value that? 
But then you have things like EpiPens and uh, generics that are the same and have gone way up in price. Now, that, would you have to admit, is pure inflation there? Yes, there is a pure inflation. There may be, there are certainly examples of medical waste. A huge measurement issue is what about this opioid epidemic? A lot of people have said that an important part of the opioid epidemic uh, arises from uh, lower standards for prescribing um, opioids Mm. and people thinking, oh, uh, you know, I can take these like candy. It's not going to hurt me much. And, uh, you know, but that was a huge medical misjudgment. So uh, there are definitely big downsides. And, and again, that's part of the uncertainty of this whole business, that uh, knowledge is very hard to value. And, and, and this, another thing, and this, this harkens back to the beginning of our discussion, you know, GDP was set up for a goods economy, um, and as time goes on, the service sector gets larger and larger and larger. And how do you measure output in the service economy? Because healthcare is one of them. There are other things. It's a much more troubling sector to value than um, the the goods output that we have. Right. And another issue here is what is healthcare? It's not like you go to the doctor to be entertained, to, to feel good. You go to the doctor basically to make you uh, improve your health. And that's an investment. It's not really a consumption good. And how do we, how should, how should we be thinking about that? Um, and how should we value that investment? Um, David Cutler and uh, at Harvard and a, a bunch of researchers around the country have argued that um, at, if healthcare increases your longevity, that you should value it at whatever you value an additional year of life being. So let's say, you know, on average we think an additional year of life is $100,000 or $200,000, then if you increase longevity, then uh, that's an increase in value. And let me be very concrete about that. So for the last few decades, um, uh, longevity has gone up by about uh, two years every decade. So that's two-tenths a year. So that's, uh, for the average person, let's say a year is worth $100,000, that's 0.2 times 100,000 is $20,000, right? It's a big part of our median income. (laughs) That's a big part of our median income. But then again, as you mentioned, have we seen an acceleration of it? So if this is a trend that's always been, and we may mismeasure it or not measure it, but it wouldn't be changing the equation today compared to how we measure GDP in 1960 or some other date. Except the difference is in 1960, um, we spent maybe 4 or 5% of our economy on health care, and now we're spending four times as much. So in the past, if there was a mismeasurement problem, it was small. And now it's much larger. And and I like your idea about it is investment. It's investment in your in your own human capital and your own ability to. So is the accounting. So GDP we always learn in your class. GDP is C. You know consumption right. plus investment I plus G and and then net exports. But is there an accounting that matters if it's C or I? Uh, yeah. There, um, so it's uh, the C is the stream of um, value that you get from making the investment, from the capital 
the, the human capital that you have, in this case, health capital. And uh, so, um, you know, the, uh, you, you have to be calculating what the, how that stream, what the uh, investments is, and you have to be thinking about the services that you're getting. Yeah, in an analogy, housing, you build the house that goes in I. Housing services that flow from the house go in C. Right. right. So you're saying you invest in your health, and, and the experience of good health is in, a con, is in the consumption part of, of that uh, equation. That's right. So what really matters is not just longevity, but disability-free longevity. Correct. Right? Because the flow that you're uh, receiving is more valuable when you're disability-free than when you're not. You, 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 we're going to get to another very important service area, which is education and measurement of that output in just a moment. But uh, in talking about that, uh, then I remember work that you did a number of years ago about uh, um, uh, firms, we don't capitalize the R&D that firms do. Um, and um, I think the GDP statisticians have begun to take do more of that than what they had done before um um do you want to speak to that a little bit in terms of the gdp right so right now we count we capture capture um maybe half percent five percent of gdp is intellectual property and that includes software r d and um uh some other things. Uh, a broader calculation of that number uh, would look more like 10, 11% of GDP. Um, and the reason that broader number is more important is that that broader number is actually bigger than um, business fixed investment. So what businesses are investing most in is in change, in novelty, new knowledge, um, and, uh, and can it be that we're investing a tenth of our resources into improving the economy and the result is a really, really slow rate of growth of total factor productivity. Mm -hmm. That's really hard to swallow. And moreover, the incentives for innovation have become massively high-powered. That is, if you think about we have billions of customers who are attached to the internet. And if you can come up with something that's worth a dollar to each of those customers, and you can get even a fraction of that dollar back from them, why, that's a unicorn, mm -hmm. right? It goes to like why corporate profits are at an all-time high relative to, to sales versus GDP, and profit productivity is not measured there in the, in the, right. in the and, corporate world, it's, it's productive. And, you know, so if you think of the big four, you know, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook. I could argue that the most important things that those corporations create are not in GDP mm -hmm. as we measure it. So over the last, what, mm -hmm. 17 years, those guys have added over $3 trillion market in, value. in market value? Yeah. Uh, and yet, very little physical capital as we know it, right? right? And and yet they don't show up. No, in GDP. So, the, I mean, so for example, Google and Facebook, you get their products for free. Yeah. It doesn't cost anything to go on Facebook. It doesn't cost anything to use Google search, right? For Apple. 
Apple is not a manufacturer, although in many, many ways it looks like a manufacturer, but it produces stuff in China, right? So what happens? In GDP terms, iPhones are imported into the United States. They're not a U.S. product, mm -hmm. right? And the intellectual property that's being created here is in Ireland. <laughs> Because of its low tax rate for anyone listening, <laughs> which we tried to, you know, yeah. by lowering the tax rate, get some of it uh, back yeah. here. Yeah. Um, and, and Amazon is a retailer, and it provides goods at lower price than conventional retailers. And is, um, but the out convenience factor is enormous there. Well, you say that the convenience factor is enormous, but the way national accountants think about this is that if we're paying less for goods through Amazon, that that must be an inferior yeah, product. It's a different product. They have a different price line for it. It happened when Walmart, the big box retailers, right. came in and all of a sudden they were selling food. Now, oh, it's a different experience if you buy it there and they weren't lowering the price of food. Is, am I right about right. What, the way That's they exactly used to do that? Right. I think yeah. they finally have gone back to that, but they were very slow at, right. at making. You know, uh, before we, and I don't want to get education when you know 10 minutes left, I, I just am thinking, you know, we, we talk about slow productivity growth um, measured. We talk about slow real GDP measured. We talk about real wages stagnating. Um, but then when we take a look at consumer surveys, uh, you know, like the, the conference board just came out with consumer confidence almost at an all-time high. I mean, it just is almost as, as at the top of the internet bubble of 2000 and into record high. And, and others, it isn't not, people don't feel like they're stagnating. I mean, I, I, there's, it seems to me uh, that there's dissonance there and that this mismeasurement might be some of it. We're really not stagnating anywhere near as much as the official statistics tell us. Right, so... F. Scott Fitzgerald said, and I'm sure people said it before him, that the test of a first-class mind is to hold two conflicting ideas at the same time. Right? And I would argue that our current economy forces everyone who looks at it to have a first-class mind, in that our economic statistics basically say that the economy is moving very, very slowly. And yet, the if you look at what people talk about and the way they're experiencing the world, we, we experience the world is changing extremely rapidly, right? And if you, everywhere you look, you see the prices of all kinds of things falling rapidly, like for example, you know, around 2000, it cost the U.S. government several billion dollars to decode the human genome for the first time. Now we're talking about, what, $1,000? Some people say $300. I mean, that's a rate of descent much faster than Moore's Law. Right. So um, let's, uh, let's move to, I mean, this is leaving that and maybe tying it later, but let's move, because we only got a few minutes, to this the education. How do we now measure output in the educational sector? How do you think we should be, and what are we missing here? Okay, so basically we have the price of a semester, right? So in higher education, we value uh, we cost a, uh, it out as the price of a semester. That's our unit of inflation. The, there's uh, a number of problems with that, including the fact that people don't pay the sticker price for tuition. But the big thing is that an hour of co a semester in college in terms of its value in the marketplace has gone up tremendously. So, uh, and really, you're not, again, like 
uh, health care in education, you don't necessarily go to college to because it's great consumption, because you enjoy every minute of it. In fact, a really good education is going to challenge you. But the um, uh, but what we we're going for is in order to create a base of knowledge that will enable us to learn for our entire lives. And uh, and it as an investment again. It's an investment. And, and then a flow of, of, of services from that. Let, let me just pick up again on that interesting fact that I had not thought about. When you say about tuition, we know it's going up at, you know, 8 10% or whatever a year, way ahead of measured inflation. Um, and then you mentioned something that's really important. Um, you know, the average person doesn't pay the sticker price. The amount of aid is enormous. Um, now, that uh, are you telling me? And I think this is the way it works. The uh, GDP statisticians just call, uh, talk about a rise in tuition. They just take that gross commission. Do they take the effective price that students are paying for it, or just the gross price that uh, is published there? Um, well. Uh, I'm not sure, okay. to be honest. The, I know that in the past, they were just taking that gross price. Which, of course, means a lot more inflation, which, again, lowers productivity right. and lowers real GDP from what it really would be. The other, it's almost like a transfer. I think they maybe call a student aid a transfer payment, which doesn't get into GDP, right. into those government purchases over there. We've been having an interesting conversation. Oh, we're in our very we're final <laughs> countdown. So, Leonard, uh, in our last minute, 30 seconds here, any, any place people can follow your research at the Philly Fed? Any other final closing thoughts there? Um, well, I have a web page on the Philly F Fed site um, and my working papers and um, other publications show up there. Uh, and uh, I think in, in, uh, I also do a lot of presentations at conferences and um, things like that. So if you Google me, you'll probably find find other uh, can we find you on YouTube uh, I'm don't think <laughs> I'm on YouTube but we do know now the Philadelphia Fed will have their own podcast right they're gonna be replaying segments original interviews that aired on Wharton Business Radio starting today with his very first interview with economist Leonard Nakamura thank you for coming down to our studio Leonard thank you for having me here you've been listening to behind the markets on Sirius XM 132 thanks to our producer Patty Hall our sound engineer Daniel Bruno you can also listen to us on our behind the markets podcast have a great week everybody for more insight from business radio please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu you